Let me open up with a word of prayer. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your word. You have spoken so clearly and sufficiently for us on everything that we need to please you. God, thank you for this church that for uh, so long has prioritized uh, the preaching and teaching of your word, uh, equipping your people to know what to do with your word, and uh, so many fruit have been born from that enduring conviction. God, I pray for many more years of, of fruitful ministry here, and that we would uh, continue to stand on the conviction that your word is enough for us, and that it, there is nothing lacking in it, and God, that we would continue, God, to be faithful, even excel still more in the uh, equipping that happens in this church. God, these are uh, difficult uh, issues to tackle, sometimes uh, complicated and uh, many things to consider, but the way that you've spoken helps us to see through the confusion, see through the crowd of voices, and to gain understanding because of what you've told us. God, I pray that this uh, next hour would be an encouragement to your people, that we would be further convinced than we are even now that your word is enough and that we have no hope outside of clinging to the sure word that you have handed down to us in the scriptures. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, welcome to this uh, next Equipping Hour series. This will be the first of six parts dealing with racism and social justice and the woke movement. So, uh, very cutting edge, uh, dealing with, with issues that you don't have to go very far to, to know that in the world that we're living in currently, there is much talk about these things, about uh, systemic injustices, about oppression, about race, and uh, what to do about those things. Uh, at least recently, it was in 2012 that a lot of this, uh, these conversations began to take place uh, with the death of Trayvon Martin when he was killed uh, by George Zimmerman. Trayvon Martin was a 17-year-old black teen who was killed by uh, George Zimmerman, who was uh, the neighborhood watch coordinator. It was reported that Zimmerman and Trayvon were involved in some sort of scuffle. Trayvon, that resulted in, in his uh, death. And later, as the facts were sorted out, and uh, this was taken to trial. Zimmerman was acquitted of second-degree murder, uh, claiming that he was acting in self-defense. The Department of Justice even followed up with this uh, highly publicized um, shooting and determined that there was actually not enough uh, evidence for Zimmerman to uh, be tried even for a, a hate crime or charged for that. And so in, since 2012, that's been followed by a series of uh, shootings, um, highly publicized by the media of uh, typically white officers shooting unarmed black people. And that has uh, sparked over the past several years a lot of conversation dealing with uh, the things that we're going to be talking about. And as unfortunate as it is, our church hasn't been immune to these things. Um, our church hasn't 
been immune at all. We've, we've been impacted. People in our body have had private conversations uh, between members. Um, there's been corporate instruction and prayer over the year for this church, uh, dealing with these issues, trying to help our body think rightly about these things. Uh, relationships in this church at times have suffered due to disagreement on these issues. Church unity has been threatened uh, to different levels at various times. And some within our body have even been offended and felt ostracized and unloved because they took sides with law enforcement or others took sides instead with uh, black people chose to uh, identify and be uh, in solidarity with minorities on these issues. And so I don't think that I uh, have to convince many of you of the importance of, of these things and sorting through these, thinking of, of these things rightly and biblically. But this is an extremely, can be, has been, an extremely divisive subject matter. And so over the next six weeks, we're going to be discussing these things, uh, primarily because to fail to have clarity and agreement on these issues is really a threat to church unity. Uh, that's what's at stake in us not agreeing with what God's word has to say about these things. There are lots of things that we can disagree on uh, and still have unity. When God's word speaks to something, uh, then we must agree in order to have unity on at least what God's word specifically says about those things. Uh, Ephesians 4.3 calls us to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And so that's primarily what this series is, is aiming at, is unity within Grace Bible Church. And so I want to help us think biblically about these issues for that purpose. Um, now, just a, a, a brief word on the, the series title, uh, Racism, Social Justice, and the Woke Movement. The Woke Movement. Um, just so that we're all on the, on the same page, what it means to be woke is to be awakened or aware of various factors that impact uh, blacks in America especially. Um, minorities are impacted by forces and systems that have been so impacted by a wrong view of race that to be woke means that you actually have uh, identified those systemic flaws, um, those oppressive weaknesses in the various systems of American society. And so you have your eyes open to those things and you're actually doing something to uh, correct those injustices. That's what it means to be woke. And I wanted to share with you this, uh, this quote from Eric Mason in his book, Woke Church. So he's literally written the book on it uh, for Christians, Woke Church. Here's what he says about wokeness. Pan-Africanists and black nationalists use the term woke to refer to no longer being naive nor in mental slavery. We, speaking of the woke church, have borrowed the term and redeemed it to be used in the context of being awakened from deadened, sinful thinking. Woke is a word commonly used by those in the black community as a term for being socially aware of issues that have systemic impact. This social awareness doesn't come from just watching the news or reading history through a traditional lens. Being woke has to do with seeing all of the issues and being able to connect cultural, socioeconomic, philosophical, historical, and ethical dots. A similar term is conscious. So the current issues being addressed by the woke movement, racism, systemic injustices, etc. 
this is what we will be addressing in this series over the next several weeks. In the coming weeks, just to give you an idea of, of where we're going, uh, we'll define next week a biblical view of justice. What does that mean biblically? And then the following week, week three, we'll spend time applying scripture's principles for practicing true justice to some of these more recent current events. And we'll, we'll kind of turn around in a, a case study format and revisit some of the uh, things that the media has been talking about, and we'll actually look through the, the lens, through the grid of Scripture, and see how we should be thinking about those things. Week four, we'll talk about disparities and inequity and how to understand statistical data that seem to prove discriminatory practices. Then we'll talk about what is the church's obligation as we live in a world filled with so many injustices and how we should seek uh, and practice justice, how those things should look in the body. And then finally, we'll end this series discussing why our eschatology, that is our understanding of the end times, is so helpful to the church for this current cultural conversation. But today I want to begin where we must begin, which is uh, a crucial beginning point for this entire discussion, and that is with the clarity and sufficiency of God's word. If we don't start here, if we don't understand the clarity and sufficiency of scripture to address these issues, then we will go astray. And these two doctrines, as I've seen it, are critically important for, for understanding these things. These doctrines, among all the chatter happening uh, within this movement, these two doctrines are primarily under attack in very subtle ways, not just by the world, but by people from within the church. It's sort of like Jude talked about uh, and had to defend the church from men rising up from within the church and introducing destructive doctrines uh, to the church. So three things that we'll, uh, we'll look at this morning. Is my mic on? Check, check. No? It's okay, I can project. If I need to. <laughs> All right, here's where we're going. We're going to look at two passages to consider. And then we'll look at a few imaginary impediments to clarity. Two passages to consider about the clarity and sufficiency of God's word. And then several imaginary impediments to having clarity on these issues. And then... Hopefully we'll have time. We'll finish with a couple sinister uh, advantages to promoting obscurity on these issues. So passages to consider, imaginary impediments, and then sinister advantages to claiming obscurity. Where we're going to start is Psalm 19. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is an excellent passage for establishing the clarity and sufficiency of God's word. You should make yourself thoroughly familiar with Psalm 19 for not just this conversation and these issues, but this will uh, aid you in counseling your own heart, counseling others for a variety of reasons. All right, Psalm 19, I'm going to read uh, starting in verse 1. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the heavens are telling the glory of God, and the, their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. To rejo- it rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of Yahweh is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of Yahweh is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of Yahweh are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Yahweh is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of Yahweh are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. First notice that the... uh, in this psalm, David explains the way that God has designed creation to speak for God. God has designed creation to speak for him, and he teaches us that creation declares the glory of God. That is, every person and every place, even, he goes on to say, every person and place that the sun touches, that feels its heat, hears creation's declaration that God is great. That is creation's function. God is embedded within creation. Uh, That voice, everyone who has experienced anything of creation has been told by creation, even their own bodies, that God is great. He is worthy of worship. He is worthy of adoration and praise and thanksgiving. And to deny him of those things is worthy of condemnation. That is the function of creation. Romans 1, Paul in Romans 1 articulates that same truth. However, in verses 7 and following, when God speaks for himself, beginning in verse 7, through his own words, he speaks with a greater degree of specificity, not even necessarily a greater degree of clarity, because creation is as clear as God has designed it to be. But there is a greater degree of specificity when God speaks through his word. And this is evident from the fact that the personal name of the covenant-keeping God of Israel, the Lord, as it's translated in our English versions of the Bible, Yahweh, that personal name is used beginning in verse 7 when David is describing the usefulness, clarity, and sufficiency of God's word. Six statements in verses 7 to 9 about the uh, nature of God's word and its effectiveness. Notice that there are uh, synonyms used for God's word. Verse 7, law, testimony. Verse 8, precepts, commandment. Verse 9, fear, judgments. All of those are synonyms for God's word. And along with those synonyms, it describes its nature. The law of Yahweh is perfect. The testimony of Yahweh is sure. The precepts of Yahweh are right. The commandment of Yahweh is pure. The fear of Yahweh is clean. The judgments of Yahweh are true and righteous. Wonderful clarity, wonderful uh, qualities of God's word. And they are not 
just beautiful qualities to be admired, but they actually accomplish something in those who believe God's word. What do they accomplish? Well, God's word, his perfect law, accomplishes the restoring of the soul. It alters the very innermost part of man. It can produce change there. The testimony of Yahweh is sure. It is certain. It is not unsure. It is certain, able to make wise the simple. Where wisdom is lacking, God's sure testimony imparts wisdom in the one who believes it. His precepts are right, rejoicing the heart. Where joy is lacking, God's word is effective and powerful to produce joy. His commandment, which is pure, enlightens the eyes. That's an astonishing commentary on the clarity of God's word, because that word pure could also mean uh, or be translated clear. It's lucid. The commandment, which is pure, the commandment of Yahweh is pure, so clear even that it's able to make clear the one who believes it. God's word is so pure, so clear, that it clarifies the, the insight of the one who, with, a, with faith, with a believing heart, gazes into it. The fear of Yahweh is clean. It endures forever, never failing, never losing its relevance. And this is not to be, this is not some of God's word. This is not certain parts of God's word that are these things. Uh, They are true. They are righteous. Not the parts that you like or prefer, but all together, all together. Every single word that God has spoken is these things. Each of these qualities and their various effects matters regarding the issues that we're going to be discussing. Racism, injustice, each of these qualities matters. In order to revive the soul or change the heart of a racist, for example, where do you go? Sociologists? History? Where's your appeal? It ought to be to Yahweh's perfect law, (laughs) to impart true wisdom about these issues to foolish people, we must resort to Yahweh's sure testimony, where some might be discouraged or downcast from having been sinned against in these arenas, or who are saddened by the current state of the church or the current state of our nation regarding these issues, they need Yahweh is right precepts so that they would experience joy and rejoicing at the heart level. If we can't see clearly on these issues, if we need our eyes, our understanding enlightened, if we need to gain insight, don't go to the cultural gurus of the day. We must go to the pure commandment of Yahweh for insight that we need. The only way to avoid uh, temporary failing systems that try to fix race-related issues or social injustices, if you want the solution that you have to offer to these issues to be an enduring, uh, God-honoring, lasting impact, then you need to go to God's uh, fear, his word, which is clean and endures forever. It gives us lasting solutions to these issues. The only place where we can find completely true, totally righteous commentary on these issues is Yahweh's judgments as he has articulated them in his word. Can you think after reading this, which even if we we went on, this word is, verse 10, objectively more desirable than gold, even much fine gold. It is objectively sweeter, more sweet than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. 
just because the masses aren't desiring God's word, just because they don't find this, the instruction offered on these issues by God's word sweet, that is absolutely no commentary on whether God's word is desirable and sweet. Do you understand that? If the rest of the world went away from God's word for answers to these issues, this would still be true. On these issues, God's word is objectively more desirable, even when it's not desired. It is better, superior, clearer, more certain than all of the other answers that even the church might run to. There is no better place to go for answers. The, the fact that God's word is so often missing, missing from this conversation is a greater commentary on man's hardness of heart and foolish ignorance than it is on the sufficiency and clarity of God's word. One other passage that I, I want us to get our eyes on uh, is, is Proverbs 2. Turn to Proverbs chapter 2. For any, uh, for any hope in discerning, in being discerning, in having wisdom on these issues, you must be thoroughly convinced that the only place to get answers is God's word. And Proverbs 2 is another helpful passage in that, in that regard. Starting at verse 1, uh, reading from, from the ESV. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. Why? Verse 6. For Yahweh gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. Why? Verse 10, for wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you, understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crookedness or are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked, the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous, treacherous will be rooted out of it. So helpful to understanding where we must go for clarity on issues of justice and oppression and the things that are coming up about race in our day. Notice that in verses 1 to 4, this whole 
section, everything that Solomon says in chapter 2 is predicated on these initial statements in the first four verses. The word if appears in verse 1, 3, and 4. If, if you receive my words, if you seek it like silver, or, or sorry, verse 3, if you call out for insight. Verse 4, if you seek it like silver. These are, he's conditioning every benefit to follow, everything that's true to follow on this condition. And it, and it really is, is eight statements, eight conditional statements. You must do these things if the rest of the truth that I'm going to communicate applies to you. And what does he say you must do? Verse 1, my son, receive my words. Receive my words. The person who wants clarity on issues of justice must first receive God's word. Notice that's just an interesting uh, verb to use. You must receive. That is... The word is there. My words, my truth is what it is. Your job is to just pick it up and just accept it for what it says, for what it communicates, for what it is. Uh, put aside personal interests. Put aside what may be perhaps your personal desires and what you want to be the case, what you may want God's word to say, and just accept it for what it actually says. Don't read into it what you want. Don't make it fit your agenda. Just receive my word, son. If you do that on the authority and faithfulness and certainty of God's own character, you will receive these benefits that follow. And notice, Solomon says my words, his words, Solomon, the human author, is communicating his words, his own words. And as we'll see, just a few verses later, the words that Solomon, the human author, is communicating, verse 6, come from Yahweh himself. The wisdom that Solomon is articulating, these are Solomon's words, Solomon's wisdom, and they are also God's wisdom because verse 6 says Yahweh gives it. Yahweh gives wisdom. It is actually from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So the point there being these words articulated in scripture that also happen to be in, in Proverbs 2, Solomon's human words. This is how God is giving us understanding. This is how God is granting us wisdom. Wisdom comes from God, not in a dream. When you sleep, you just wake up wiser. He doesn't just impart it, rain it down on you while you're unconscious but he actually imparts wisdom through human authors in his word. It's from God's own mouth that we get this wisdom. And he says, if you just receive it, son, then you'll benefit in the following ways. If you treasure it up, treasure up my commandments with you, if you make your ear attentive to this wisdom, if you incline your heart to it, so that your reaction is to seek wisdom here, so that wisdom uh, sort of comes to you like water rolling down a slope, if you incline yourself to receive it, if you call out for it, earnestly ask God, plead for God, raise your voice for this understanding that he would give it to you, and then if you actually take upon yourself the diligent pursuit, sparing no effort, no resources, no energy, 
sacrificing sleep and other things if you must, if you do that, son, verse 5, voila, you will understand. You will understand the fear of Yahweh and find the knowledge of God. This is Solomon's way of telling his son that if he engages in a humble, diligent, all-out pursuit of God's wisdom, then he'll have it. He will know how to fear God. He will know what he needs to know about God to be pleasing to God. And just particularly helpful for this conversation, look at verse 9. What will Solomon's son know if he engages in a humble, diligent pursuit of God's wisdom that comes from God's word? Verse 9, you know, things like righteousness and justice and equity, the very things that the culture is saying they're after, righteousness and justice and equity. The reason they don't have it is because they have not sought God's wisdom. The reason we can have it is because we have God's wisdom. If we believe God, then we can understand God's thoughts on righteousness and justice and equity. Not just some matters of righteousness and justice and equity. Not most matters of righteousness and justice and equity. But he summarizes all of those things by saying, every good path. There is no good path that you are cut off from if you seek God's wisdom, is the point. Fascinating. That's amazing. God has given us access into his storehouses of unimaginable wisdom right here in what he has articulated in his mouth, from his mouth, in his word. And we have far more than even Solomon had. Solomon had the Torah, right, Moses' writings, Joshua's writings, Samuel's writings, David's writings, Asaph, some, like the, the Psalter, much of it. And then what he himself contributed. And even in his day, that was sufficient to understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. So how much more for us who have the the fuller revelation of God? There is nothing lacking in God's word. There's some reasons that people would like you to think so, but there is absolutely nothing lacking in God's word to understand what you need to understand to be discerning on these issues. Scripture does not tell us American history, obviously, and, and, and nor does it claim to be sufficient or clear on American history. So the fact that uh, historical details that God didn't intend to include in his word have happened is no... Uh, commentary on the sufficiency of God's word, but even with things that have happened since God's word has been finished uh, being written and handed down to us, the current cultural events, you don't need the Bible to tell you what happened to Trayvon Martin in 2012, what happened to George Floyd in 2020, for you to understand what God's word does say that is going to help you interpret those things rightly. It's sufficient in what it does say to help us understand those things, and we'll be uh, talking about that in the weeks to come. It does seem, thankfully, that people are eager to gain clarity. Um, People are actually saying they want clarity on these issues. Um, the, The tragedy is that so few people are resorting to God's word to gain it. There was an article that uh, appeared in Christianity Today uh, recently in October 
titled Racial Clarity is Essential and Difficult for Many Christians. Uh, this, this article cites a book that explores reasons why black Christians have higher levels of racial clarity than white Christians and others. Um, and here's the explanation that it gives for why black Christians have greater clarity on these issues. It says, black Christians experience as victims of racism the role of the black church excuse me, black Christians experience as victims of racism, the role of the black church in surviving centuries of oppression and collective expectation to see God actively working in social justice in our world. Those are the reasons why black Christians have greater clarity. Absolutely nothing to do with God's word. Your experience being oppressed gives you clarity. The history of the role of the black church in surviving oppression has granted you clarity. Or your, ex, your own expectation to think that God's going to do something about those injustices grants you clarity to see. That's, that's casting aspersion on the clarity of God's word. To say that you can get it elsewhere, what do I need God's word for? If I can gain clarity just through my experience, I just need to keep living as a black man, and I will have clarity. Uh, these authors even go on to uh, recommend five ways to grow in your clarity on race-related issues. Among the five, I'll spare you, among the five, know your Bible is, is, is the shortest, uh, the shortest, it, it includes the, the fewest words on, on what to do. Everything else comes down to uh, consulting people with the right experiences or reading the right extra biblical books from, you guessed it, black authors, uh, seeking out new perspectives, people who disagree with you, I don't know what that means for the, the black people who disagree with the prevailing opinions on these things. I don't, I'm not sure what they're supposed to do. But you can see how this, the, the confidence of the culture, certainly the world, and even many Christians is not in God's word. I'm running out of time here. <laughs> Point two. Imaginary impediments to clarity. Imaginary impediments to clarity. The objective clarity of God's word, as well as the subjective clarity of those who believe God's words, is not impeded by the following things. Okay? That's what I'm, that's what I'm getting at when I talk about imaginary impediments. These are not actual impediments. These do not actually stop you from gaining subjective clarity on these issues, nor do they do anything to the objective clarity of God's word. Okay? Uh, these things are, are as follows. I just read all of them. White skin is an imaginary impediment to clarity. White culture is an imaginary impediment to clarity. White privilege, if there were such a thing, is an imaginary impediment to clarity. White authors, white seminaries, and white churches are all non-issues for those who believe the clear truth revealed in God's word. We're going to have to move through these really quickly. But first, white skin. Why is this not an impediment? Simply because Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. That has nothing to do with skin color. If you fear Yahweh, then you have begun, you have laid the foundation for understanding in all things, as we, as we just looked at in Proverbs 2. The fear of Yahweh, not a certain skin color, is what gives, what gives wisdom. 
It's where, it's where wisdom begins. And so anyone who has failed to understand these issues that we're going to be discussing biblically, it is not due to their whiteness. You get that? And, and, and just, just to be clear, we could exchange white with any other adjective, right? Any, any other color, uh, black skin, uh, brown skin, whatever, this or that culture, this or that kind of church, I'm highlighting uh, whiteness because that's primarily the, the explanations that are given to people who don't understand, right? You're steeped in white culture. Oh, the problem is your white seminary that you were trained at. The problem is your, your church is too white. That's what we're hearing mostly, so that's why I'm choosing that. But this, is, this, is, this could apply to any other group of people. You get that? Um, white culture is also not an impediment to clarity. This is what, uh, in, in sociological terms, is called social location. Social location. Um, social location just has to do with the, where you find yourself oriented uh, socially. Um, friend groups, uh, the culture in which you were raised, what you had access to, and those kinds of things, just socially, your social location. People have claimed that one's social location, if it is white, is an impediment to gaining clarity on race-related issues. And I just want to dispel that notion. Uh, turn to Joshua chapter 9. This is extremely helpful because in Joshua chapter 9, some of you are wondering, man, what's Joshua chapter 9? Joshua 9 is uh, just after a couple battles have been won by Israel in the promised land in Canaan. Here you have Jews who have, are the only ones thus far who, who have God's oracles. They're the, the ones who have received God's words in Scripture. It's been handed down to them uh, by Moses. Moses is gone. Joshua has entered the promised land. They have uh, conquered Jericho and Ai. And at the beginning of Joshua 9, the various na uh, nations within Canaan see what's coming. They've already heard about Israel, and they decide to combine forces. That's uh, the best you can do if you, you see what's coming, still foolish, they're fighting against God. But the Gibeonites actually decide, we're not going to join forces with these other nations. We're going to uh, try and side with Israel and deceive them into making a covenant with us. And so they do just that. They dress like they've come from a, a land farther away than Canaan, outside of Canaan. And then they deceive Joshua. Because Joshua and the nation don't seek the Lord, they make a covenant with this people. And then when, it, when they finally get to uh, Gibeah and they realize they've been deceived, they confront the Gibeonites. And here is the Gibeonites' answer to why they deceive Joshua. Look at verse 22. Then Joshua called for them and spoke to them, saying, Why have you deceived us, saying, We are very far from you, when you are living within our land? Now, therefore, you are cursed, and you shall never cease being slaves, both hewers of wood and drawers of water, from the house of my God. So they answered Joshua and said, Listen at the clarity that they have, without ever having experienced Israel's social location. Verse, verse 24. So they answered Joshua and said, because it was certainly told your servants, it was told your servants that Yahweh your God has com had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land before you. Therefore, we feared greatly for our lives because of you and have done this thing. They attribute 
it's no doubt that they're clear on what was going to happen, right? They gained objective clarity. The way they got cleared is because something was communicated to them. It was told your servants, referring to themselves, that Yahweh your God had commanded his servant Moses. They even know about Moses by name. It was told us that Yahweh your God commanded. Sounds like the commandment of Yahweh is pure, enlightening the eyes. The pure commandment of Yahweh enlightened the Gibeonites' eyes even before they had the scriptures in hand because the scripture was told them they gained clarity. They never were a part of Israel. They were never among the people. They had never met Israel, it seems. But word had spread about what God had said, and that was enough to give clarity. Social location, the right culture, right culture, is no impediment to gaining clarity. Some have suggested that the reason uh, that the social location of black people is what has given them clarity, Esau Macaulay, in his book, Reading While Black, Reading While Black, he, he suggests that the reason for slaves in the South reading the Bible better than their white slave masters was this. The, the quote is up for you. He says, black Christianity, historically, I will come to understand, has claimed that white slave master readings of the Bible used to undergird white degradation of black bodies were not merely one manifestation of Christianity to be contrasted with another. Instead, they said that such a reading of the Bible was wrong. Enslaved black people, even those who remained illiterate, in effect, questioned white exegesis. That is true. But he goes on to say the social location of enslaved persons caused them to read the Bible differently. Macaulay attributes the clarity of black slaves. The, the slaves were able to gain a clearer understanding of what scripture said of Christianity than the, the men who claimed to be Christians who, had, who were enslaving them and oppressing them. It's true that they did have a clearer understanding of these things, but it's just because they understood what it clearly said. You don't have to be a slave to understand that the Bible condemned slavery. The type of slavery that was practiced in America, man-stealing, and then causing people to work for, for, for no wages, you don't need to be a slave to understand those things. In fact, many white people who weren't slaves understood that. They were abolitionists. So it's not due to social location or being in the right culture that gives you clarity. Also, uh, white privilege, and I'll just give a, a few words on these. Uh, white privilege is the increasingly popular opinion in our day that America and other Western nations in particular have been so thoroughly shaped by wrong ideas about race that the various social systems, the structures that are in place in, th in these countries, these Western nations, they naturally tend to benefit white people to the disadvantage of blacks and other minorities. And so because it is believed these systems were created to benefit white people and continue to benefit white people to the disadvantage of other people groups, then therefore white people have privilege. When you go out into the world, if you are white, you profit in ways that black people don't. Or you have the luxury of not having to think about your skin color in ways that black people actually have to if they're going to get ahead in America. That's what white privilege is. That's what it's called. Now, 
if privilege was a barrier, if being in a culture where you experienced extraordinary privilege, if that was a barrier to understanding, because that's what white people are being told, you don't get it because you're just privileged. Therefore, you need to listen at me, who's not as privileged, and I can tell you how it is, what it's like, what it's really like. If privilege was a barrier to understanding injustice and oppression, then you would have a, an impossible time explaining Moses and Solomon. Think about it. Moses, a Hebrew, had access from birth to all the privileges and wealth of Egypt, the world power at the time. How did he come to understand the oppression and injustice being experienced by the Hebrew people if all he knew was privilege? The privilege of the oppressor, even. Hebrews 11 actually tells us how he came to have such clarity. It said, it says in uh, verse 26, 25, that he chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. How did he know about Christ and a coming reward and why God's people were being ill-treated? Where did he gain such clarity on those things? Well, God had articulated those things a long time ago to the Israelites, to Abraham. He said they would be oppressed and enslaved for 400 years. Going all the way back to Genesis uh, 14 and 15, as it's Moses would later record, but those things were already known what God had articulated. That's how he gained clarity. Even Solomon. Solomon had no problems growing up. Uh, son of the king, access to incalculable wealth during his lifetime, uh, lived on the backs of the people as we would hear right from when they complained against his son Rehoboam? How did Solomon gain such insight into oppression? He records that in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. He's privileged. He should, he should be unable to understand oppression according to this, this view. And then various things like white authors like the Puritans. The Puritans have really taken a beating by the woke movement. Uh, unjustifiably so. They're not an impediment to understanding race-related issues. Um, white seminaries, uh, I, I, I was told during seminary that uh, I wouldn't get what I needed. I wouldn't be adequately equipped to go do ministry in, in the inner city in New Orleans, for example. I need, to, I need to leave this church and go get trained by uh, people who are already doing urban ministry, which is astonishing because we all were given the same Bible. I don't understand why, why I need to go learn it from somebody who's black or in a, in a black seminary or a black teacher to, to learn those things, if everybody's supposed to be saying what the Bible says anyway. In white churches, same issue. We're all given the same word of God, right? If we're saying what God said, then we can gain clarity on these issues. Next week, I want to just uh, pick up. We're out of time. I want to just pick up where we're leaving off this week and talk about why so many Christians are insisting that these things cannot be clear without the solutions that we just mentioned. There's a sinister advantage to, to making that claim. And before we define what justice is biblically, I want to share uh, why some people have decided to impugn God's word as unclear on these issues. So 
Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your, your clear revelation. I pray you would further establish this church uh, with confidence and conviction that what you have said is clear. It is not only clear, it not only equips us for godliness, but it is superior to any and everything else that's being said that challenges your word. Give us uh, clarity as we look into your word. Make your clear commandment enlighten our eyes, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.